means it is time for Bring the Jury. I'm here with Luke and Brian Sheely. If you are joining us from last week, we talked about Rex Huerman, uh, Gilgo Beach killings. A lot more has kind of unraveled and come to the surface um, since then. So we're going to touch on that today as well. And if you've been following us um, while we were talking about Brian Koberger and the Idaho Four, great news. We're also going to talk about that today. Or, or Luke, what's going on with the timeline? We're going to start with Brad Koberger today. Yeah, Koberger had a little activity last week. Um, you know, we, we're kind of up against an October 2nd trial date. Um, and I, th- I think Luke and I had a bet, right? Yeah. I think, how'd it go about the trial date? You thought they're going to ask for a continuance because it's a death case and that's what you do because you always need to be more prepared. Yeah. And then I was saying, based on the comments and the battles between the state and the defense team, that they were just going to play chicken and try to force the issue. Um, talking a lot about speedy trial rights and this kind of stuff. And it looks, what do we wager? A Guinness? What do we wager? A drink? Something like that? It looks like I, I owe you a drink because there was a five-hour motions hearing last week, and one of the issues taken up was the defense um, seeking a stay of this case to push it back from its October 2nd trial date. And, you know, on a death penalty case, this is already just shockingly fast. Just. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. When again were the killings? When did it take place? Like November of last year. Yeah. I mean, less than a year. It's just. Less than a year. I've got, got, we have like, I mean, some of our murder cases are three, four years old, unfortunately, but this is really rapid fire. So that was a motion that was requested, you know, and they they didn't just say we need more time because we need to, you know, investigate the mitigation side more thoroughly and, and you know this is all in the context of an alibi case which is as we've covered extensively is very unique alibi case on a death case but they basically um, Koberger's defense lawyers said they wanted to stay because they were investigating and probing grand jury irregularities now they did they did not use the word misconduct but they said uh, irregularities you know, the grand jury in that area, you know, by laws, 45 individuals, and there were fewer than that. There were like 30 something, 36, 38 in the grand jury uh, room deliberating. And so that, I mean, there is a motion to dismiss that's been filed to, to quash and dismiss the case based on the indictment not being sufficient. Well, you get an indictment out of a grand jury process. So, but they asked for more time to investigate, and this judge basically said, no, you're not going to have that. Um, was that surprising to you, Luke? The judge said no? Uh, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> you know, and it's... Um, but you're going to enjoy the Guinness nonetheless. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, too, because a judge kind of talks like a judge that we're very familiar with whenever... A scheduling issue comes up and, and this judge basically said, you know, I really want to afford Mr. Koberger of all of his speedy trial rights. Right. You know, I, we're going to get a little reality check here. You understand? We're going we're gonna to enjoy these speedy trial rights. The state has been seeking 
you know, a fast trial. There's a, an Iowa statute that says that all trials must be tried within six months. You know, that's all in the context of like non-capital, non-capital cases. Um, so the judge is not, when he's saying, we, you know, Mr. Koberger, we, we know you're interested in your speedy trial rights. He's really meaning, screw you. <laughs> the, the train tracks uh, are, are moving forward. The train's coming down the tracks. Train of justice. Uh, so anyway, so that that was part of it, and of course, you know, the prosecutor's idea of any kind of grand jury irregularities. You can imagine what they thought about that. They thought it was delay tactics. And, of course, I mean, based on what we're describing here, that request for a continuance or like a stay is it's not it's not necessarily. It seems like dig into irregularities. That's not usually the type of request that gets granted. You know, something that might get granted is like, well, we have a witness problem or, you know, we can't adequately defend our client per the aid, you know, ADA guidelines, ADA guidelines, unless we can dig into X, Y, Z, prepare for a death case or, you know, it's just kind of fish for something irregular is, is never really likely going to be doing much for a judge. You know, it's all record preservation, right? It's all filings, you gotta take up this stuff so that, you know, the records preserved. They did have, you know, five hours of um, expert testimony, Luke. Um, I wanna talk to you about, as we talk about the DNA aspect of this case, because again, part of, the, part of the defense, so defense had two motions and then the state had five smaller-ish motions. The defense main motions were, we need a state judge to investigate grand jury irregularities. You know we've got a motion to dismiss the indictment in part based on irregularities denied, okay? Our next motion is gonna be a motion to compel, um, and we're gonna put up all these experts on the DNA, the special kind of DNA. I'll talk about that in a second, but the prosecution really had a couple things they were concerned with. Number one, what's this alibi? <laughs> um, what are we talking about? And, you know, by law, the defense has 10 days before trial to turn over that information Unless the judge orders it turned over sooner. So, I thought they already set a date to have that information in. Well, normally it's 10 days, but like in this hearing last week, a date got set. Okay, yeah, for September. September 29th. September 8th. 8th. So that was one of the things right. that basically the, one of the state motions was, listen, all this alibi, schmalibi, that's fine if he wants to say he's driving around, but, you know, we also want to like close out any like supplemental stuff unless they're complying with alibi notice and by the way judge we think it's hokey and we think we're entitled to it and so the judge kind of put that to bed and said all right um september 8th which is right around the corner mm. defense you have you have to turn over any and all alibi materials including witnesses and other evidence or else you don't get to use it and so just i hope he went and got a frosty I mean, he needs that frosty. He, he needs, needs that something. Wendy's late night. He needs that receipt. Dollar menu. Small chili. Baked potato. Small chocolate frosty. Well, that's right. Sure. Hannah, what what is Koberger's uh, late night menu items of choice? Given your so, pro I, your profile of yeah. him, given my expertise in <laughs> um, you know reading people and what they would order at a fast food restaurant. Koberger seems like the kind of guy that would order a strawberry frosty from Wendy's. Luke added a plain baked potato, which I think is a fair, fair read on this guy. Um, 
And yeah, just, you know, just some things that really make your skin crawl. Like Nightcrawler. Like Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah. If you guys have been following along, he's a dead ringer for Nightcrawler, Jake Gyllenhaal, 100%. Well, but I'm unbiased. <laughs> he had himself a little face uh, Manny Petty situation going on uh, in court, didn't he? Uh, what? Shave his, trim his eyebrows. Oh, uh, oh my gosh, did he really? I think I read some things that he was he, like, his significantly uh, trimmed up. I mean, if I were his defense <laughs> team, I'd have a court order just on the eyebrows. Wow. Just to make sure they never got yeah. out of whack. They need to throw some glasses it, it, on. Never more sports. than a quarter of an inch in length. Mm. But the other prosecution <laughs> motions or matters before the court last week, alibi, and done. September 8th. Turn it over. All right. Fine. So the, the thing about that is, though, I mean, yeah, they want to avoid any last second delays like we discussed. Some kind of gaming because it's like no later than 10 days before trial. So certainly a judge can order earlier. But as a defense lawyer, I mean, you're always investigating, just like the state is always investigating. So you might, he, your client might tell you, I was in this area driving alone at night, it's elsewhere from the, from the instant location, and you might not be able to get that slam dunk evidence until after September 8th because you're waiting on a records request. You're waiting on a subpoena to be complied with. And it's not your fault, but what this judge is saying, he won't let you use it? No. Well, we've been in that position. I know, but like, so it's a difficult situation and, and to preclude that in a death case would be tough. But if obviously if they're just sitting on the same stuff and they've had it for a long time, the judge wants to get ahead of that. You know, the funny thing about this is it's such a rush to this trial. And I mean, the, his death penalty case is going to be tried before a year from this incident of these killings. But if he gets convicted due to it being a death case, the appeals and post-conviction relief proceedings will go on over a decade. That's, that's the crazy part about this. We're rushing to trial with a judge that's allowing these two sides to play chicken. Mm. The defense now is asking for a stay. Get out of my courtroom on that issue. Um, and then it's going to be, if it goes down, it's going to be forever. Yeah, and you really want to do things right when the penalty is ultimate punishment. So... But Do you find it interesting, and maybe I'm getting ahead of our table of contents. Um, it's fluid. We can. <laughs> Do you think it's inter- like they're um, pleading not guilty, as opposed to like? Do you find that uh, risky, like, given what we kind of already have at our disposal for evidence? And being that he's up against life, or yeah, up against death. Wouldn't you just argue, what are the benefits of just arguing, like, give him life or a, a better sentence? And it's a total defense strategy based on the client and the evidence. Like, we've talked about in past episodes, um, cases that are just overwhelming evidence. Sometimes you don't. Nick Cruz. Nick Cruz case mm-hmm. with our friend Casey Secor. I mean, they, they pled him. And uh, they didn't do a whole wasteful trial with all these victims and families. And they just did the penalty phase. But um, sometimes you can offer that and the prosecutor won't allow it. Or sometimes you can really, if you actually have an arguable case on the, on the front end, on the guilt phase, you can, and here they're going not just like a diminished mental capacity, but right. straight like I wasn't there. If, if, even if it's unanimous, beyond a reasonable doubt, you could have some juror who later on mm-hmm. was like, I, I had 
and I had a question about that, you know, and how can I kill the man when I, in my own head, was thinking there's a sliver of me that kind of believed he was at that Wendy's with that plain baked potato. <laughs> right. So it's, you want to have like residual doubt in, mixed up in your penalty phase decision making. So that's one strategy. Um, and unless I truly have an alibi, I'm, I've never seen an alibi in a death case. Not saying I've scoured everyone across the country to figure it out, but I guarantee you, I'd be willing to bet more than a Guinness, maybe a bottle of bourbon, that uh, it's rarer than the proverbial hen's teeth. Mm, what, what's the choice <laughs> bourbon that you would uh, wager? Mm, Woodford? I mean, who's going to, you're going to, someone needs to decide this, but I, I would say there's less than 10 alibi death cases. Oh, you're, you just said there, ha- there has never been an alibi <laughs> death case. Now you're saying, Fewer than ten. I said rarer than the proverbial. I don't even know you're trying to wager now. I'm just you. I'm confused. All right. All right. So you don't want to take the bet. Now, back think, to the table of contents. So I, I think yeah. Back to the table of contents. <laughs> so and we we will do some capital style jury selection questioning maybe at the end of our Kobe segment. Kobe. Kobe. Yeah. Also, that's Koberger. Brian uh, nicknamed him Kobe today. This is a new development. Kobe. Kobe's. That was the subject line of a lot of my emails that I got today. Kobe. Hmm. More Kobe. But more Kobe, please. So alibis addressed in terms of the timeline. We've got September 8th. Um, this, these are the state's funny motions. They want to um, get timelines issued on the right for Coburger's speedy trial rights. They're, that's the title for their motion. They're very interested in his speedy trial rights, of course. we got to make sure that we get him to the... Execution block as fast right. and efficiently mm-hmm. as possible. Because that's what he wants. Right, right. Yeah, but I love how they couch at his speedy trial rights. Um, requesting deadlines for pre-trial issues, that's pretty standard. But then the real thing here that took up a lot of time in the hearing last week was basically this, this new kind of, relatively new kind of hit of DNA that the FBI especially was using regarding genetic genealogy investigation. Um, and the FBI is kind of using it to help law enforcement build a tree of, of family DNA and give law enforcement kind of a leg up in terms of their leads. But then all this stuff is very highly protected in terms of law enforcement. Um, and law enforcement does not want to turn it over. So we want to talk about that for sure. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But for now, our dates are this. Here's a, here are our dates. Trial date, October 2nd. And Luke, tell me if any of this does not make sense to you. October 2nd trial date. Dates are hard. Jury selection is going to start September 25th. Ooh, that does not make sense to me. Just a short window of time. Tell everybody why that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, <laughs> for most capital jury selections, you have voluminous numbers of jurors. Because you have to get through so many to get some that are eligible to consider both life and death. And so you, you have enhanced statutory abilities to drill down on that, to have attorney-conducted voir dire jury selection as opposed to just a judge. You know, a judge can pick a jury in like 30 minutes based on one sheet of lawyer questions that the judge will ask. But statutorily, I mean, most death cases done right when you're picking a jury especially of this magnitude and this publicity, it would take weeks, three mm-hmm. weeks. I think... Uh, We've got one. I mean, 
two, it, it would take two, three, four, five weeks, just depending on a lot of variables, but never one. That would be pretty, pretty tough to achieve um, unless you're really efficient. And they've got just a bunch of questionnaires, a bunch of information, and you have to bring in just twice as many, three times as many people. And it's just a slower process because the attorneys are doing it um, and are allowed to dive into way more. And there's not a time limit. Judges sometimes like to put a time limit on it, but that's kind of rare. Um, I don't know how they do this case in a week. So, so yeah. we're gonna talk about the process of selecting a jury. Do we wanna get into that now? Let's hold off for just one second. Um, I mean, the last death case you were involved in was what? Two weeks jury selection? Week two? Um, well, I think Cruz was, yeah, a, it was like a five week jury selection process. The one I did, which is totally different compared to this, was more like a seven day jury selection or something like that. All right, but that was also Judge Clifton Newman and he's he he kept us late. Like we were there picking jurors at like nine at night, which is really above and beyond um, to push. And he, he's one of the most efficient judges ever that I've encountered. So I mean, maybe they've got a judge like that. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. But it's not really good for anybody. Right. So September twenty fifth, jury selection. So all that process, which we'll do a little kind of mock questioning of that in a little bit here. September 29th, or your last kind of pretrial hearing. And then October 2nd, baby. Let's do this. Come out the block. Hmm. Um, so, but, you know, we've talked about, you know, the motion to stay, but the majority of last week's five-hour hearing, um, the defense put up four or five experts. And it's all on this uh, DNA issue Investi I'm going to say it again because it's kind of a mouthful. Investigative Genetic Genealogy. Um, IGG is the acronym. And it's uh, relatively new. Um, the defense is kind of making, you know, assumptions and assertions that it's, you know, like so new that, you know, it should be criticized. And it's an investigative technique mostly employed by the FBI to kind of put law enforcement on point. It's been around about five years. So... Our old boss, Doug Strickler, when DNA kind of first came into the courtrooms in South Carolina in like the 80s and 90s, Luke, what did, what did Doug say about that to a Richmond County jury? Send that voodoo back to New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I mean, any time you get a new body of science or something that aids a scientific testing process, Park, let's pump the brakes, man. Let's get all the... So, like, it was a huge motion to compel put on by the defense because the little part of this this type of DNA... They're trying... The state's really saying it's not analysis. It's not testing. We're just kind of getting you in the right direction. And I want to quote some things here to kind of help our audience really uh, kind of get the right feel for what it is. Yeah, that's my stomach rattling. Um, so it's used by D law enforcement. It's a process where detectives build a family tree based on DNA profiles to zero in on a suspect. So that's kind of the way it was talked about in this 
database, these, uh, what I call it, it's a genealogy that the FBI are using. Like the, def the defense wants it. Give it to us, please. We want to see, like, who else did it put in a profile? Who else did it, did you guys prop up for law enforcement to look at that you didn't? And it, they also are seeking correspondence, notes, emails. Um, and they put up, um, and this is how I think the defense did it the right way. They, they put up a couple experts in the field. Um, they put up a couple um, kind of technicians. So they had two IgG experts um, as experts in the field to talk about what this is for the court to build a record. And then a number of attorneys who specialize in IGG kind of discovery processes. Um, and one of them, Stephen Mercer, basically was like, listen, turning over these databases um, and the re release of these IGG records is basically the bare minimum practice standard. So he's saying, listen, if, if law enforcement is going to have the aid of this process, it's got to be turned over. We need to know what it is. We need to know about how, who was excluded, who was included. Um, the quote is, the attorney must obtain discovery of the scientific testing of the evidence sampled. And that is particularly so in a capital case, particularly environmental samples of trace DNA. It's absolutely crucial because it informs the scope of the investigation and the, and the experts to get. So it's basically like, we don't even know how we can really start unless we get how they started, which makes sense to me. Right. Um, and then, you know, you don't hear a lot from one of Koberger's co-counsels. This is Alyssa Massoff, and she's telling the judge, you know, basically every single person, and this sounds like something I would say, honestly, every single person in this courtroom should have a pause when talking about forensic science that is no more than five years old. Yeah. Because, you know, forensic science is peer-reviewed, it's developed, it's got to be, you know, experts don't just get to pop up in a courtroom and, talk, and be an expert. They have to talk about what they publish, mm -hmm. how they teach, right. where they've been qualified as an expert before. And that's the expert, but also the methodology for some new science. I mean, it has to be past muster, has to be reliable. I mean, we've got lots of pseudosciences and even some that are kind of science that have been considered and then rejected by our courts like polygraphs mm -hmm. still very prevalent in investigations but not allowed in court there's certain things like voice stress uh analyzers get that out of here get that, <laughs> that out of here we had that give it in one get it out of here it's literally a crime to give that in south carolina they put like a machine up to your voice take that junk science back it, to new york cracks yeah. they claim your line i mean there, what was it, like a Scott Peterson trial? There's some trial where there's some hair in a trunk and the FBI maybe 10 years ago did some kind of hair analysis comparison that was like too weak to reliably get in. Um, so that stuff will calm down the pike that you have to assess as a legal community. Um, so five years, yes, I agree. So Ms. Massoff also says, to the court cumulatively, it is overwhelming that we must have this evidence to do the work. And so they put on, you know, five hours worth of, you know, not, this is the good part, not lawyer argument. This is why Luke and I, I don't have to even hear Luke say this to know that he likes this as well. You're putting a record. 
you're having experts come on and talk about this body of science. You're having in this new body of science, people that have dealt with it talk about, you know, that are considered experts in their field, even if they are lawyers, talking about why they need it and why they get it routinely in other jurisdictions. Um, so here is the state's position. Well, you're not turning it over. <laughs> We're not going to turn We're it over. Doing it. And we don't have to turn over. Um, why would they not want to turn over? So here, I'm going to read you this quote, and then I'm going to kind of paraphrase from one of my, ca my favorite cases, Kyle's v. Whitley, but basically, which is a constitutional disclosure case. But so the, the Idaho discovery rules do not require the state to turn over such records. Um, counter Jeff Nye one of the uh, Attorney General's Criminal Law Division prosecutors. IgG, so here's where they get to have their cake and, and eat it too, does not represent a scientific test, he argues, nor does the information help prove the defendant's innocence. Well, oh, well then. Yeah, you kind of don't know um, until you get it. Um, that, that's just their call. They get to make that. Elements that could require their disclosure. Um, Nye says that IgG is merely an advanced method used by police to obtain an investigative lead. So they're basically saying we don't have to turn it over. And oh, and then there's so like can, can the defense just not come back around and use that in court? That even law enforcement themselves are like, well, this stuff it can't I mean, really You can be. always attack the integrity of the investigation, but here here's what Nye says as well. We keep on hearing a lot about how this is a death penalty case. And death is different. Like, we should have to turn over this stuff. But discovery is not different. I can, just, I can just visualize this prosecutor in my mind. I've seen so many of them. Even though I've never laid eyes on Mr. Knight, if the Idaho Supreme Court wanted the rules to be different for death penalty cases, then they could have done that. But they didn't. Mm. So, <clears throat> one of my favorite cases, Kyle Whitley, talks about disclosure. And really... You know, our rules of evidence and our, really our Brady disclosure um, requires, you know, a prudent prosecutor. Here's the quote that I like so much. You know, if making a choice of turning over evidence or not, they always err towards the side of turning over. It should never be, I love this quote, the private musings and deliberations of a prosecutor. You should always be, you know, wanting to serve the interests of justice, which normally requires disclosure versus you know, tacking too close to the wind and keeping it held. And, you know, I think that and there's a number of other cases that kind of quote that. Um, but to me, it's very important to, for a prosecutor, you know, this was clearly a big part of how they got to Mr. Coburn. This new um, DNA... Not a test, but certainly is it something that was able to get them in the right direction that is only five years old, but they're not going to turn it over. Um, and other jurisdictions are turning it over. Well, you see this a lot. And so you take, you have a prosecutor has a very narrowly focused argument. But where the rubber hits the road is that local legislatures in a particular state like Idaho are making up a, a discovery rule about how information is shared, but that never trumps the fundamental constitutional due process rights to a client defendant where the ultimate penalty is at stake to confront his accusers, to have a complete and full defense. 
and the, you know, a whole litany of constitutional cases on that. And it just, that's where it will come down to. He, he has no right to confront his accuser, accusers adequately without that information or show that maybe there was another suspect. And does it, and even though it may not be a scientific test, it's a, sounds to me like it's a, um, a data method of comp- compilating, you know, certain DNA profiles. What? I mean, but no one really knows how it, it works. He's calling it an, uh, basically an investigative tool, like crime stoppers. Well, guess what? There's no court in the world where if there was a hundred crime stoppers tips for uh, an incident, a murder, and two of them were like my guy and uh, 98 of them were totally different. Yeah, we get to know about the 98 of them that were totally different. So it's it's the same investigative lead stuff. So that, that has not been ruled on, but they spent five hours doing it the right way, putting up experts, educating the court, letting them know what happens in other jurisdictions. And by the way, we've got a firm trial date. We just need this stuff. You know, the defense always, to Hannah's point, has the ability to attack the integrity of the investigation. And so, yeah, I mean, if you don't have how this case started, and you got law enforcement being like, we started with an IgG lead that thanks our friends from the FBI, and, well, great, we subpoena all those folks from the FBI. We subpoena, and then it's like, well, how does it work? I don't know. Somebody in the FBI knows how it works. Well, they're, they're coming up next. Let me ask them in front of a jury. How does it work? Well, that's all proprietary. And like, we got to get some guys in another lab that do that. And, you know, it's like, well, do you have them under subpoena? No, I don't know who they are because I was never provided this information. You understand? The state over here at that big table didn't turn it over to us. Um, and you get to, you know, utilize those cross-examination techniques to make the state look sneaky. Why not turn it over? Yeah. You got a right to know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I mean, maybe they Ozark it and they say that like law enforcement is behind all this. Ozark it. Wow. <laughs> didn't Brian Koberger, didn't he like volunteer with local law enforcement at yeah. times? Yeah. So they would, yeah. they would maybe know him. They would know about him. Yeah. They'd be like, wow, if we ever... I don't know, went rogue, we would have a prime person to uh, pin this all on. I don't know. Obviously, that's that's a huge reach, but, you know, if you were to Ozark it, maybe there's some corrupt cops in that area that are evil and did something bad, and who knows? Maybe Brian Koberger is getting caught up in some bad stuff because he's an easy target. Because he's definitely an easy target. Yeah. He's got that, the eyes... Apparently, like there's a there's a there's a statistic of like all the the people, all like serial killers that like they have the white you can see the whites around their eyes like what? without them opening yeah what yeah yeah no but there's like there's like some crazy statistic that's like if you I don't know what percentage it is but like so many serial killers kind of have that physical attribute of being able to see the white completely around someone's eyes even when they're just like resting which Brian. Yes. What? Yeah, just like that. The um, Nightcrawler look. So anyway, the judge... And I was reading this judge's name. It's like Judge John Judge. Like I think literally his last name is Judge. Really? Judge yeah. Judge. He's just judge. born to be a judge. I like that. Yeah, and he's like, talking, he's talking about reality checks and we're going to help Mr. Koberger with his speedy trial rights. And, no, he's yeah. like, it sounds like so many judges that we've been in front of, honestly. Um, 
so anyway, he has taken out her advisement, which basically means he's like thinking hard about it and he's thinking about what? I gotta do the right thing, but um, what do we do here? So to be conti continued on that issue, um, last thing I'll say, or I wanna talk about a little bit as we close out Kobe. Yeah, we'll close out the Kobe chapter and stay stay with us because we're gonna get to Rex Hureman after this. Just, just that one of um, the victim's family members, um, Kaylee, um, one of our family members had a like bring back the firing squad kind of t-shirt in court. Oh, um, it was like a pro firing squad, you know, just kind of as like a, my hey, mom would do that. Hey, Coburger, I'm here. You know, this could, this could be your end result. So that was kind of reported on a little bit as being interesting. And so, well, yeah. well she should, wow. we have that in South Carolina. <laughs> really yeah. attempt at it. Yeah. Um, but, um, so this is, Luke was in Charleston today at our other office, um, and Hannah was like, coming in hot, like, hey, like literally like 30 minutes before we got here, she's like, hey, would it be a good idea to show our audience kind of basic uh, jury selection type questions in a death penalty case? Luke would like walk in the door like, oh, I guess I'll need to like find some of my own, you know, kind of get up to speed real quick. So, but yeah, I think... So what you are suggesting doing is you'll play an average juror. Right. I've been, I got the letter in the mail that said you've been selected You're going to gonna show up to court and Luke <clears throat> is going to play a defense lawyer, which he does sometimes, <laughs> and kind of just demonstrates some of the techniques. And Luke admittedly is like, I'm rusty on this. Oh, yes. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> you all watching, too, can play along with us. So Luke will be asking the questions and feel free to kind of drop your responses in the comments. If you were on the other side of a defense attorney trying to see if you'd be a good candidate for a death penalty case uh, juror, but Luke, um, but Luke, why is it a little bit different than a normal jury? Like, what? How are how are your questions different? And one, you get questions. Correct. Uh, most states have judge conducted voir dire, even in a murder case, where the judge simply is, is given a submission of maybe a page or two of questions for the jury after some general qualifications to make sure they can read and write and don't have childcare issues. And, you know, we picked a bunch of juries, unfortunately, that the judge reads that little sheet and he decides what he or she wants to ask the potential jurors that they think is pertinent to this murder case. And the, the state might have some that they think, and it's, it honestly can get done in 30 minutes to an hour. And it's, we're chronically asking for attorney-conducted voir dire, which some states do have. Um, in South Carolina, we do not. But in South Carolina, and in almost in every state that has a death penalty, you do have statutory attorney-conducted voir dire to make sure that you're just going to have so many more jurors because so many more get struck. But the whole point is that you can really learn more about that juror and their biases, their motivations, um, because the state's What's wrong with having a bias, Lou? That's just life experience. What do you mean, right. man? Well, it's, it's fine to have a bias as long as you're not on my jury, unless you're biased for me. But, um, but basically, in the, there's been a revolution in terms of kind of how people are trained to select a death pony jury, and that's from the folks, the good folks out in Colorado who teach a, a capital jury selection method that has kind of gotten quite popular because it's very effective and the whole point of that method is to really drill down on someone's views very as efficiently as you can 
on the penalty and the punishment for a murder. And then once you can kind of categorize them to either save folks that you think will be good and be willing to consider life, educate them, save them, keep them on the jury, and the folks that are not willing to consider life and you know would just convict and give a death case, death penalty upon um, a conviction, you want to get rid of those people for statutorily disqualifying things. So it's it's a way to whittle through that. I mean, there's you could talk forever about it. Go see the you know David Wymore is the guy that invented it, and some other brilliant lawyers out in Colorado, and it's been saving lives ever since. And lots of attorneys like our buddy Casey Seco are quite brilliant and excellent at it. Um, I'll, I will give it a go, and I haven't done it in years. Real quick, Luke, yeah. I got a question about sure. the strike system. How is it different in a death penalty case versus like a normal murder case? Well, it's going to be based by statute um, for that particular state. But you're you're basically, I mean, you're always trying to get rid of people for cause, for cause, for cause. Um, is, and that's why you want to try to get them, the bad folks, to admit that they can't be fair, that they would, you know, kill somebody because it's expensive to house people in prison or because they assume that it's uh, automatically, if they're guilty of murder, then they just need to get that penalty or that they think that if, if, you, if, if it's not unanimous one way or the other, that it's just a hung jury and you have to redo it again. Well, no, you know, it only... It only takes one in most states to have a life verdict, and that's a verdict, it's not a waste. So like, it depends by state, but you're trying to get rid of people for cause. All right, well let's do a quick little, do, do we have our general facts, or can I just come up with some general facts? No, I mean, basically, you try to make, if you're the defense, you try to make the facts as, as similar to the case that's actually at hand as possible without drawing an objection for so-called staking. So for the purpose of this exercise, what are our general facts? So let me just, for this exercise, she's the juror. Let's, let's just call it, we're, it's the Coburg case. Coburger, right? Okay. That's All our right. facts. Sounds good to me. Um, and let's just say for the purpose of this exercise. Can we to judge? Sure. All right. That we've, we've gotten through the stage of Everybody submitted their questionnaires. Lots of people are being gotten rid of for various reasons by the judge. And now it's time for an attorney-conducted voir dire. So you're going to have basically two teams of lawyers, the judge, and some poor juror just gets called into this courtroom all by themselves. It's called individual sequestered voir dire. They're not with the rest of the panel. They're by themselves. So basically, um, Hannah, you're the, yeah. you're the, you're the the, I'm using my real name, even okay. though I might go into character. All right, you're, you're <laughs> the the juror who's come in, and I have everybody has all spreadsheets about your life already. We might, oh, you might not have filled out the questionnaire. I don't think I would have made it this far then. <laughs> right, you don't know that, but you might. Maybe you filled out the questionnaire quite well, and I'm, I have a certain feeling about you, or maybe you didn't answer any of it, and I, you, I'm just don't know. So, okay. so you can just opt to leave the questions blank. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, you can't make someone fill out a questionnaire. Yeah. But so, right. so we start something like this. Like, Hannah, thanks for being here. Um, I just need to ask you some questions about your views on the death penalty, okay? Okay. Um, there's no right or wrong answers here. It's just very important since we are in, in that type of case, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I want you to imagine that you're sitting on a jury, okay? Not, not this jury. 
All right, hypothetical jury, some other jury, um, and you and 12, it's a death, death case, and you and your 12 jurors have unanimous, unanimously at the first phase of the case um, found the, the defendant, the client, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, okay? Okay. Um, and you are now tasked with sitting at the second part of the case, which is what we call the penalty phase. You understand? Mm-hmm. Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay, and that's, that's where you and those jurors would um, decide whether it's a life or death verdict, okay? Okay. So you're sitting in this imagine, imaginary hypothetical case, not this case, but some other case, mm-hmm. and you have decided unanimously that the client is guilty of murder, mm-hmm. all right? beyond a reasonable doubt, and it was done with malice in their hearts, and evil, okay? Okay. Malice of forethought. Um, and that you've considered all the evidence, you've sat through this hypothetical case for a week, you've considered all the evidence, and you've heard evidence that it was self-defense, right? You've rejected that. You may have heard evidence that it was an alibi, that the client didn't do all these heinous murders. You sat, you listened, you considered, you rejected it, okay? You still with me? Yeah. You've heard some evidence about perhaps some mental health issues with this guy that did this terrible crime. You discounted it. It didn't. It, you didn't buy it. Okay. Um, you, this is not a case of mistaken identity or mistaken of fact or even just a mistaken gun going off. Mm-hmm. You and your twelve jurors have sat there through a week of testimony. You've deliberated. You've decided that this guy is a guilty, guilty murderer. And so now I want to know your opinion on whether death is the only appropriate punishment for this guilty murderer of this innocent victim. What's your opinion? Mm, I think I would need to know more about the situation. I think my decision would be very circumstantial based on who the victim was, how um, emotionally driven the case was. Um, how many people, how many lives were lost, um, if I believed that this person was going to do it again, what the purpose of this was. Um, generally, I don't feel like death is the answer. I don't think that that's the right way to rehabilitate someone. Um, but depending on how heinous a crime could be and the safety of other people, maybe even in prison, um, could be dangerous and it can be expensive to keep people in prison. So it just really depends for me. Well, and that's normal. Um, but do you know from a, a starting position that the state of Idaho is, is, is always satisfied with a life verdict? Did you know that? Mm-mm. But they don't require a death verdict just because you found someone guilty of murder. Do you, okay. Are you aware of that? No, I'm not. But now I am. And to answer some of your questions, you know, these are very natural. But the way, the reason that people under our law can give life is if they find something called mitigation. Do you know what mitigation is? What is it? Mitigation is really, it's unique to you and your own individual, personal, moral judgment about the client, about the hypothetical case. And so it might be the way he looks at his mom Mm. and you see a little glimmer of laughter between them when she walks in the courtroom. It might be the way he puts his hand on his defense lawyer's shoulder, or it might just be anything or nothing at all, but it's any reason deep inside your heart that you latch on that you think that somebody is worthy of life, right? Do you understand that now? Human 
characteristics Correct. that I feel drawn to. And it's, it's unique to you because it's your own individual moral judgment. Um, you know, you, you have asked, had some questions about the expense of whether someone is, is there, you know, serving mm-hmm. a life sentence. Um, does that make you feel like they're more likely and they should deserve death? Because it, it does cost a lot of money to keep people in prison. Well, I mean, that's a difficult thing to answer. I just feel as though, you know, as a former um, teacher, you know, I could just see tax dollars being used maybe in a different way. Um, if I felt that I didn't, I didn't believe that this person had anything left to provide our community or if they were beyond the point of rehabilitation, okay. then I could see perhaps there being a benefit to saving our resources and money. So if I'm understanding you, I think that if you feel that someone has some redeeming qualities, mm-hmm. some rehabilitation openness, that they might be worth life. Is that yes? Okay. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, and do you? And that makes sense. Now, do you understand that when you're back there in that deliberation room, that again we've talked about your individual moral judgment. That is yours and yours alone, right? Mm-hmm. You have a, do you understand that you have a right to deliberate, but you don't have a right to have someone tell you how to decide, mm-hmm. right? And, and basically, you should, should consider the evidence, but once you've made up your mind, you don't have to sit there and listen until everybody else has decided, until, everybody, until somebody has changed your mind. You know that? Right, yeah. You actually have a right and an affirmative duty to stand up once you've made your decision and knock on the door and say, Bailiff, I need to go see the judge because... Okay. I've got I've got my decision. It's been made, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you saw somebody else being attacked for their belief, would you feel that they deserve their decision to be protected and honored? Yes, definitely. And then in America, we all are a melting pot of different opinions and beliefs, um, and we're all entitled to that, right? Mm-hmm. Would you help protect that person if they were in the, in the jury room and seemed like they were getting bullied into something that wasn't their verdict? Yes. All right. Would you help them knock on the door and say, Bailiff, we're, we're, we've decided. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, thank you, Hannah Jury. So <laughs> that's just a little... Oh, that was intense. How'd she do, dude? She's good. I would want her on my jury. I would... What would you give me on a scale of one to seven? Because anyone who maybe wasn't listening last week or the week before, there's kind of a sliding scale. Um one being somebody that I guess would never give death. Yeah, like one would be people that would be religiously opposed to death. Mm-hmm. Just you know, would never. They can't allow their their religious beliefs don't allow them to judge. Okay. So very likely they would not make it on your jury because the state would disqualify them because they're not open to considering a death verdict. Mm-hmm. Seven is your automatic killers, the ones that think if you're. If you're guilty of murder, then you that and death is the punishment. Um, six, someone who basically wants to give death for financial reasons or you know other reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, you if you there's a saying that if you get a two on your jury, then you're in great shape. You know, yeah. twos are really out there. I don't know. I put you at a two. I probably put you at a three. Okay. You. Automatically, I know you're a teacher. I know you care about rehabilitation. You threw me a little bit of a curveball on, which might have been the point, when you talked about the cost. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of... Sneaky too. 
maybe like a three that can get to a two throughout the right. penalty phase. This sounds like my Enneagram. I'm a two-wing three or a three-wing two. And so I, I didn't think that you were going to be anything other than like a two or three, but I wanted to see if you really bit mm-hmm. on, yeah, I just, it costs too much money and I'm a teacher and I don't, I have to buy my children school supplies. <laughs> right. So yeah, I'm not going to spend, what is it? 18 grand a year mm-hmm. for a guy to sit there, you know, then I'd, I'd get you off that because if right. you're, if you're wanting death for financial reasons or other reasons like that, automatically disqualifying. If you're mitigation impaired, if, if I describe mitigation to you and you're like, that doesn't, I don't care about no mitigation impaired. I like that. That's actual constitutional mitigation terminology. Impaired. If you, if you're impaired to the point where you can't consider mitigation, you can't be on the jury. If you're like abuse, excuse, get off your day. I'm gonna kill you, boy. Like you know, then we're trying to get you off the jury. And guess what? If you don't have a jury, you're not having a death penalty trial, and that makes every defense lawyer happy across the nation. So that was a rusty little sample. No, that was of, great. Of, that was and then good. you're trying to empower someone that you really want yeah. to stand firm on their convictions. No, I thought that was that was awesome. And, um, and a lot of people don't realize that it doesn't require a unanimous right. verdict in the penalty phase, at least in the state where I've been practicing. I don't think I completely knew that like I could at any time be like, I'm out, I'm done, I've decided y'all can keep right. going. Right. That could seem like it could get very hostile. Well, you have a right to deliberate and consider, but you don't have a right to allow them to beat you down and wear right. you out. It doesn't have to be unanimous. Uh, you walk to that door and a hung jury does not mean a redo. It means basically it's a life sentence. And we do have, we did have a question while we were doing that. Um, what our own personal opinions were about death, the death penalty, whether we agree or not. I'll go ahead and start since you guys kind of heard. I did get into character and make, tried to make it a little bit more, uh, I don't know. Fair or yeah, fair, but no, I I do not agree with the death penalty, and I don't think that that you know I, I believe that people um, all have an opportunity to rehabilitate and provide to this world. We don't have to do God's work for him. <laughs> yeah, of course I don't believe in death penalty. Every ounce of my body thinks it's ridiculous to punish someone in a way that the state itself says is murder, you know, the most calculated, malicious planning, step-by-step, stage-by-stage punishment. And, you know, it's also, even if I felt like it was a proper punishment, which there's no way it is, and if it weren't so uh, just ridiculous for the state to think of it like that, um, it's also like disproportionately against minorities Mm -hmm. that have no means. I know we're covering you know, high profile Coburger case, but like most of the death penalty across our nation has been used against poor folks um, with rushes to judgment historically. And um, so it's terrible. That's a very good point. I'm adamantly opposed to it and nothing gets me more fired up when I have a case that, you know, is scary enough where that might be considered. But I also think from a, society standpoint like there's nothing more hypocritical than the government (laughs) being like hey you're such a bad murderer we're gonna murder you yeah because you know murder is nothing but you know the unlawful killing of another with malice of forethought there's nothing more malicious than the government plotting over the course of years Mm -hmm. painstakingly to kill you and also i've 
we have been around a lot of folks that were eligible for the death penalty clients or who death penalty was sought and you get to know them. I just don't think it's honestly serves a purpose of preventing crime right? because uh, the types of folks that are getting into these situations usually, I'll say usually, are mentally ill or in a wild panic moment of their life. It's not like in the middle of that moment. Whatever has come to their doorstep mentally, emotionally, that they're about to commit a horrific act, they're not going, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't storm into this school full of children and kill 30 because maybe I'll get the death penalty. I mean, they're not rational actors all the time. So it just doesn't really serve that purpose to prevent heinous crimes. It just costs a bunch of money. It re-traumatizes victims. Um, you have tons of appeals. It bogs down our criminal justice system. So, no, I'm not in favor. Um, speaking of death penalty cases and maybe potential death penalty cases, you know, I think maybe we can do a little teaser for next week. Yes. We can talk about Rex. Just a couple. I mean, I think we can talk a lot about Rex. And who are we talking about, Hannah? Rex Hurman, he is the, are they officially calling him the Gilgo Beach Killer? Or are they just associating him with? Law enforcement is. Okay, Gilgo Beach Killer. And so there's a reason why they're not, again, we touched on this last week, there's a reason why they're not calling him the Long Island Serial Killer. um, Because I guess they haven't connected him to all of those bodies yet. There seems to be a ring um, with that situation potentially, but I do believe he is responsible for, well, it seems as though he's responsible for a lot of those. There's a lot of links there. Pretty soon it'll be the nationwide missing person killer. Yeah, pretty I mean, soon it'll be that's, that's exactly what Rex yeah. can be called. So we're going to talk about him next week, but we're going to go ahead, Brian, give us Just, a teaser. Yeah, so this is a brand new case, and, and we'll continue to cover Koberger extensively because things are really heating up. So everyone that's interested in Koberger, we're going to be covering a lot as we approach that October date and as we have updates. But... Um, Mr. Rex here, Hureman, is a uh, well-to-do architect out of New York, and he has just been charged with three different murders um, out of the Long Island, Gilgo Beach area, and we covered this episode before last a little bit. Maybe it actually was last. I can't remember, but... All I know is I was sweating profusely on, that was the, last on, oh, yeah. on my but, deck. But basically, there are a slew of bodies found. Like, we're talking like 8, 9, 10, 11 in this area. And basically, they have been profiling human for a long time to the extent, you know, these are all kind of old cold cases, like late 90s, early 2000s, missing persons. They're, most of these are women, most of them are sex workers. And basically, they've been, um, you know, there's a task force that's been basically Rex's task force, and they've been following him, profiling him. Watching him eat pizza. Taking uh, pizza crust out of his local pizza shop and, and grabbing it up and matching his DNA against hairs in various things found on a lot of these bodies. And boom, bada bing, he's charged with three bodies. And he is the number suspect numero uno, numero uno on another one of these Gilgo Beach women. And he's just been arrested like late July. 
He, um, I think last week we were covering. He tries by August. Yeah. <laughs> um, so interestingly enough, you know, New York does not have the death penalty, and so Luke and I were talking a good bit about the feds. The federal, you know, system does have um, death eligibility, but you got to meet certain requirements. And so, like, but they think that this guy is potentially a real, true serial killer. Um, Do they think that he could be the most? Uh, I mean, what would you call like the most killingest? Prolif- prolific, killer? prolific, killingest. Um, I like killingest better. Killingest. <laughs> 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 Uh, we need to look into that. But. I think I'm sure someone here watching knows who, um, what serial killer out there has the most bodies and what's the number. But, well, we'll look into that. But just for the teaser for next week, so Rex Human, you know, had a hearing right out the gate with his lawyer. We talked a lot about that in the last episode. Who I think is probably grossly misqualified to handle this case. He's just mm-hmm. all in the press. He's putting everything about his client on his website. It's it's terrible, it's unethical, but it, they had a hearing for his DNA to actually take a swab from his cheek to basically help with the chain of custody and have a clean kind of connection. Because, you know, they've got DNA from a pizza box, he's, or a pizza crust he's challenging, they've got other DNA. From Jimmy's Kelso. So now they've got probable cause for a court to order his DNA, that's being done. But they are looking at like his profile, sex workers, he would take him out for dinner. He would meet him places. They'd go missing. He would call their families on their, on the victim's cell phones and taunt them. But bottom line is this guy, they found like they've got bodies in the New York area. They've got bodies in this beach area. He's got property in Las Vegas. He's got a condo. He's got property in South Carolina, our home turf. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're fine. Always comes back to South Carolina. And so we're yeah. like the Kevin Bacon of So now that they've got this, this basic MO for this guy, that he killed, allegedly, he's going after sex workers, he's taking them out, he's getting them in a private location, he's killing them, and he's got these dump sites, allegedly. They're finding these mass, essentially, graves of sex workers. And again, they're coming up in New York, Long Island, they're finding find some in you know out west. There's some in uh, Louisiana. There's some swamp with like mm. a bunch of unidentified, unsolved kind of killings that maybe fit this style. But I guess here's our teaser for this week um, before we go into it next week. Basically, near his condo in Las Vegas, just south, there's a victim, Victoria Kamara, who was only 17 years old, and she had a child, and she basically was a sex worker and she was found dead in a very similar style to this. Um, and now that they've got his DNA, local law enforcement in Las Vegas um, are gonna compare it mm. to DNA material found on her body. And so there's basically, a, you know, the prosecutors are like, this is so eerie. The similarities in these cases are scary. This is the Suffolk County um, prosecutors are like, listen, the type of women that were killed, the occupation, the profile, all this happened. We're waiting on the DNA, but it sounds like he may have killed people out in other locations, like out in Las Vegas, which would be, you know, then it becomes a question, does he kill them there, does he dump them there? It would seem highly probable that he would go out there and actually kill them. So 
Um, Nevada may have the death penalty for sure. And then we also may have a, a situation where what if he, I mean, is, is he driving? Is he killing? Is yeah. he luring across state lines, which always has a federal implication? They're already um, digging up in his properties in Chester, South Carolina. We'll talk about this more next week as we did the prior week. But he was kind of a task force was assembled around him because he's very distinctive. He's this very large man with kind of a thousand yard stare, and he drove during the time of these bodies going Lots missing. Of white eyes, right? Yeah, he drove an uh, avalanche truck, Chevy Avalanche, and so um, mm. it's kind of fit. So they, they did just tow an avalanche off of his Chester property in South Carolina. Oh boy. And there's missing women in this area. Um, the last thing I'll say, and this was part of the email it's I sent. always South, South Carolina. This, this part of the email I sent to you that you sent, did some funny reel this morning about all the emails I was flooding you with in your inbox titled, mm. Almost a Skin Suit. Yeah. <laughs> Almost a Skin Suit. So there is a, a TMZ interview of a lady named Nikki Brass. And it was a TMZ investigates the Gilgo Beach serial murders. And she's like, just being interviewed, like, yep. I had dinner with him in 2015, and of course she was a sex worker, um, so he took her out to dinner, dinner, wined and dined her, and he just starts in 2015 asking her if she's a fan of true crime, and she's like, well, yeah, I love true crime. He's Wait, like, is, this the, is this the Manhattan? No. Never mind. This is, uh, yeah. Oh, it is? Okay, I've seen this. This girl, I think, might be on TikTok talking about it. Oh, well, she's. I'm imagine she's talking to everyone that will listen, but she's... Um, we should get her to join our podcast. Well, it was called the Gilgo Beach Serial Murders. Tag her. Send this to her. Missed warning signs. Her name is Nikki Brass, and she's basically like, yeah, we're at dinner, and he drove me there, and he's asking me if I like true crime. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of the Gilgo Beach murders? Of course I have. I live right around the corner. That and then she, feathers. And then she says, basically, he confesses, basically confesses and brags about the killing to the point that it freaks her out so much. Of course, then he asks her, you want to come home with me? <laughs> And she's like, no. And so she calls a girlfriend to pick her up. And then he gets angry and storms out of the restaurant. But he's basically, you know, want to be famous. Basically admits that, you know, I'm, I'm the killer. And so then she's like, yeah, I just, why didn't you tell someone? Well, I was on probation for drugs. So, like, I didn't want to, like, you know, stir the pot. But she's all now like, yeah, I knew he was a serial killer all along. Every, wow. they, you know, they should come to me. So. Yeah, Nikki, come on. Come on, Nikki. We'll, we'll gladly have you. But we'll cover Rex. Um, and Nikki's lucky not to be a skin suit. Um, we'll, we'll continue to cover Rex, as we will Coburger, and anything else of note, mm-hmm. because things tend to pop off in South Carolina. Things it's just, always pop it's just off in South how Carolina. It is. I wonder if WLTX still have you guys back. I wish they would. Yeah. All right, well, it has been another wonderful Monday here. Um, one way that you guys can always support us is by sharing this podcast. You can do it right now at the bottom right of your phone. We really appreciate you guys and we will see you again next week. This is Brent Finn. Bring the jury. There you have it. (laughs)